This is Peter Rose, and I'm here with a rather different kind of ABR podcast from past ones. All my life, I've kept a daily journal. I'm not quite sure why I do it, but I can't imagine not doing it, if that makes sense. Most diarists aren't really sure why they devote so much time to these private records, and perhaps there's no single explanation. Some writers' diaries are highly literary, analytical, indeed philosophical. Mine is very different, much more social, a kind of record of my work at ABR, my friendships, my travels, and the literary scene. In a way, it's a kind of group biography. Early on, it was certainly a useful literary exercise, good practice at how to record events and conversations succinctly and with a certain irony. It's rare for me to go back and look at the diaries, though I did rely on them heavily some years ago when writing a kind of family memoir. A while ago, I began publishing extracts from the diaries in the print edition of the magazine, highlights of ABR's year, laced with a bit of gossip and the odd joke. This year's diary, from which I will now read some extracts, is rather different in tone. Living through a pandemic has changed all of us, I think. Publishing a magazine during repeated lockdowns has not been without its challenges. COVID has also coincided with a marked deterioration in my aged mother's health. In March last year, Elsie moved into aged care. Like so many Australians and so many good friends of mine, I've experienced the feelings of anguish and impotence that go with caring for a loved parent during lockdown. In choosing the following extracts, I felt obliged to tell something of my mother's story this year. To do otherwise would have seemed blithe, incomplete, even false. So, with your indulgence, here are some excerpts from my 2021 diary arranged in two parts, commencing with January to June. I hope you enjoy it, if enjoy is the right word in this context. January 1. Hindmarsh Island. Rose early and sped across the water to inspect the wetlands where hundreds of ibis were roosting, a marvellous sight. But we won't be going to New South Wales in the middle of the month, following a COVID outbreak in Sydney. Victoria has closed the border, causing much predictable lamentation. January 5, 3am. There's no point not starting the day, as my mother is much on my mind after a recent severe illness. I begin to fear this woman will be left with few happy memories of life. I think of Dahl's awful words in As I Lay Dying, It takes two people to make you, one people to die. That's how the world is going to end. But there are worse ways to start a daunting day than reading Jacqueline Rose on Freud and the pandemic in LRB. Here's a quote from Freud. We lay a stronger emphasis on what is evil in men only because other people disavow it and therefore make the human mind not better, but incomprehensible. Then I turn to Wallace Stevens' 
the auroras of autumn, whose third stanza is full of magnificent valedictions about his mother. It is the mother they possess who gives transparency to their present peace. She makes that gentler that can gentle be. And yet she too is dissolved. She is destroyed. She gives transparency. But she has grown old. The necklace is a carving, not a kiss. The soft hands are a motion, not a touch. The house will crumble and the books will burn. They are at ease in a shelter of the mind. And the house is of the mind and they and time together, all together. January 7. A day that will surely live in infamy, as they're already saying in the United States, though it was January 6 there when it happened. I was listening to Breakfast Radio when they announced that the joint sitting of both houses of Congress intended to ratify Biden's election as president had been overrun by a huge mob of Trump supporters incited by the president and his goons, Giuliani among them. Soon, anarchy prevailed at the Capitol, whose security was exposed as unbelievably lax. The representatives and senators and Trump's veep were escorted to a safe room. It took hours for them to begin to clear the steps of the Capitol while the fascists roamed around the Capitol with their smug signs and Confederate flags. I watched all day, numb, disbelieving. The sessions resumed, and by 3am Biden had been duly ratified. But what does this mean for the US? Will the scales fall away from people's eyes, or will it inspire them? And Trump, said to be deranged, with a fortnight to go before the inauguration. Alex Ross and I exchanged emails about his new book on Wagnerism, which I meant to review for The Age. Alex is keen to appear on our podcast. I sympathised with him about Trump and with Patrick McCacky in New Haven too. January 9. To cheer ourselves up after our mother's woes, We went to Gimlet on Russell Street, Andrew McConnell's new restaurant. Outside, I saw Adam Gilchrist and Michael Hussey in jeans and T-shirts, still trying to look in their 20s, quite passably too. C had absolutely no idea who they were. January 10. Sam Watts, who is doing a PhD on race in America, has proposed an article on the assault on the Capitol citing historical precedents. It arrived this morning, and it's good. January 12. Up Turak Road comes a Japanese woman, masked, bandy-legged, carrying an enormous cardboard box almost bigger than herself. She must be replacing the oven wrote my review of Helen Garner's New Diaries for the Literary Review. January 13, read, no, luxuriated, in the criticism of Alfred Kazan, his essay on T.S. Eliot, and the even more remarkable and perverse Henry Adams. His Kazan becoming my favourite critic, eclipsing Virginia Woolf, his amplitude, his elegance, his fearlessness. January 14. 
Well, if Kazan is my favourite critic, Gore Vidal is the saltiest and the most malicious. I've been reading some of his essays from the 1980s when he was obsessed by tenure-seeking, theory-riddled academics. I love his riffs about American vacuity and Orson Welles' dog, a totally unprincipled small black poodle called Kiki, Vidal writes. No one else would or could describe a canine as unprincipled, except Henry James, that is. Even Vidal's brief introductions are malign. In both of them, he declares that he will never write his memoirs. Quote, I have never been my own subject, a sign of truly sickening narcissism. Within a decade or so, Vidal had written two autobiographies. David Gelber, in London, likes my Ghana review, a zestful piece, he says, but I was mortified on rereading it to discover that I had used the word finest thrice. Now David is resolved to read Henry Kessler's inimitable journals, which I extol in my Ghana review. I first met David at the Literary Review's cramped little office in Soho. David told me about a recent literary review event at his grandfather's house in the country. Curious, I asked him where his father lived. Blenheim, he said quietly. January 16. Just back from the South Melbourne market where I visited Rod Cameron's excellent bookshop near the Donuts, I found some treasures including Martin Boyd's memoirs, Rod, who addressed me as Bobby's son, which doesn't happen often now, told me about his long career as a book valuer on 3UZ. January 17. Our first jazz concert in a year or more at 45 Downstairs. Mary Lou Gelbart introducing Alexander Nettlebeck and his impromptu quartet seemed anxious. This was their first concert in a year. God knows what will happen to arts venues like this. January 26. Much enjoying Mark McKenna's new book, Return to Uluru, about a police killing at Uluru in 1934. The culprit, Bill McKinnon, somehow survived the subsequent inquiry ordered by the Lyons government. Then he took himself and his bride on a 4,000-mile journey across Australia, stopping for afternoon tea with my friend Sonia Chalmers' grandparents' family at McDonald Downs before lobbing on the Kidmans. January 28. Nice responses to the Peter Porter Poetry Prize, which has been won by Sarah M. Saleh. Sarah's family wants to frame the media release. She told us there is no letter P in Arabic, so they're having trouble processing it. When Danielle Bleu, another shortlisted poet, joined us in the virtual green room at the ceremony, the gent sitting beside her turned out to be Stephen Pinker, her stepfather. At least he knows about ABR now. Helen Garner and I exchanged emails about old photos and my rather volatile dream life. Helen said it seems to carry a lot of psychic freight. January 29. Margaret Court has been made an AC in the National Honours, so I fulminated in an e-newsletter. 
I also congratulated Kerry O'Brien on declining his AO in the Australia Day Honours following court's elevation. Others have since followed suit. I hope Kerry's been inundated with letters of solidarity. February 1. I was interviewed for a creative clune short film on the life cycle of the book. Leslie Faulkner-Rose interviewed me about reviewing and being reviewed. I admitted that I don't mind being reviewed negatively by those I disregard or dislike, prefer it even. I mentioned John Forbes's taunt on the eve of the publication of my first book that I wouldn't like his review when it appeared next day. So I obliged Forbesy by never reading the review. I sometimes wish that writers, sensitive souls, would do likewise. When Leslie asked me about online reviewing, Amazon, Goodreads and such, I couldn't resist. There's something to be said for expertise and reflection, I noted. February 9. Never did I think to address the Rotarians, but so I did this morning at the invitation of one of our patrons. They asked me to speak for 20 minutes. I did so precisely, fluently, without notes. I have become shockingly glib. Thence to the retirement village for mum's reassessment for the home care package. The assessor was sympathetic, thorough, and clearly shocked by mum's condition. Mum told us she now weighs 39 kilos. February 12. So back we go into lockdown of the severe kind we endured last year. Everyone is consternated. I'm not sure why. This is what I expected. Repeated lockdowns around the country while we continue to accept citizens returning from infected countries and house them in hotels in the CBD, what do the authorities expect? Perhaps our smug federal government will finally shoulder its responsibilities and come up with new quarantine measures and facilities rather than leaving it up to the state premiers. February 18. Lockdown ended today after a few new cases. We sent March to press. February 21. A remarkable dream in which my parents decided to euthanise themselves and tried to persuade me to do the same. In the end, I balked and awaited news of their demise and all the media hullabaloo that would surely follow. February 23, watched a wonderfully trashy film called Woman of Straw with Sean Connery and Gina Lollabrigida and Rolf Richardson saying the most indecent and racist things. February 24, in a dream I was in Adelaide with John Curtsy and others. John asked me what disappointed me most in life. Humanity, I replied rather formally eschewing my usual pragmatic reply. Benignly, interestedly, guardedly, JMC asked me if I thought I felt this way because I hadn't, and here he was very tactful, engaged in many intimate conversations for some time, by which he probably meant psychoanalysis. Judith Heron, the medieval historian in Oxford, 
has replied to my email in which I showed her Michael Campion's review of her new book on Ravenna. Judith was pleased, but thought it overly generous. We reminisced about Geoffrey Tate's ring cycle in Cologne back in 2004, which is where we met. She and Anthony Barnett, founder of Charter 88, got to know Geoffrey in 1998 in Adelaide. This sent me back to my 2004 journal. Here's a passage written on our return from Germany in November 2004. A remarkable thing is happening in my head. I can't stop the Wagner. All the way back on the plane, I kept hearing bits from the ring, especially Siegfried's funeral music, which Geoffrey Tate conducted wonderfully, possibly the most transforming few minutes I've ever spent in the theatre. C is exactly the same. He hears it all the time, too. After each performance in Cologne, we all had supper in a pub where they sand down the tables every day. Delicious Kölsch, the local beer, and herring, of course. A director at the Metropolitan Opera joined us. Bruce Baby, as we dubbed him, earned a smack from Jeffrey for criticising the admittedly woeful Siegfried, whose performance in the opera of that name lives in the memory for all the wrong reasons. I doubt whether Bruce Baby had ever heard of Australia. Certainly he didn't endear himself to the several Australians in the party when he asked us if we'd ever heard of Mark Twain. February 25. Since we all wonder in the age of COVID if we have drinking problems, we were heartened by a New Statesman report that Queen Elizabeth herself consumes four cocktails each day, a regal example she will outlive us all. February 26. Having decided not to go to the Adelaide Festival, I offered Dorothy Driver my ticket to A German Life, the Christopher Hampton play starring Robin Nevin. Dorothy agreed that my curtsy dream was intriguing. Acutely, she asked me how I would normally reply to John's question. I said I would express regret that I'd never done something truly useful with my life. My dreams... I described as operatic, Verdian, murderous. Mary Kay Wilmers has retired after 30 years as sole editor of LRB, which she still owns. There is a rather smug interview on the podcast with the great Andrew O'Hagan. Wilmers is hilarious about fiction reviewing, which she considers facile and bloodless, the last vestige of the welfare state, as she puts it. Certain words she abhors, then excises, e.g. moving, poignant. Like us, she always trims amidst, but I'm not sure how vigilant she is about very, which we nearly always remove. Only Kate Llewellyn has ever noticed this. She once greeted me as the enemy of very. February 27 to Middle Park for a long walk. When I asked a sullen old Greek fisherman what he hoped to catch on Kerford Pier, he looked at me as if I were about to assassinate him or arrest him. We all fear arrest these days. But eventually he proffered snapper. Having raced through Edwin St Auburn's double blind, I've gone back to Nevermind, 
first of the Patrick Melrose novels to see if the new one is as good as I think it is. Nevermind is a far superior because terrifying book. But the new novel is wonderfully satirical and oddly moving. But I do wish St Alban hadn't abandoned whom. March 2. Stayed home and edited in a frenzy two good commentaries, Claudio Bozzi on the decline of faith in science in the US, Tim Byrne on how theatre is responding to the pandemic if it has a future. Frank Bongiorno has much fun with David Kemp's latest tome. A humorous exchange with Andrea Goldsmith. She's appalled that I've never read Bello, whom she reveres. Once I did try The Adventures of Algie March, much commended by Geordie Williamson, only to find it unwelcoming. But we're agreed about Philip Roth. I've been reading all the late short novels prior to reviewing Blake Bailey's new biography of Roth. They stand up much better than I recalled. Sarah Holland-Batt, our chair, was on the front page of The Australian, including a wonderful photo of Sarah and her father, who was treated monstrously in a home. She has a stinging op-ed inside. March 9. It felt odd returning to the Melbourne Recital Centre, our first visit since 2019. The concert was in the salon, socially distanced. Ronald Farron Price was there, much fated. We sat in the front row with Andrea Goldsmith, another of Ronald's old piano students. Because of her hearing problems, Andy detests masks. She can't lip-read. She writes interestingly about her deafness in a new review in ABR, how she disguised it for years on being diagnosed at the age of 23 when she was still a speech pathologist. First, Anna Goldsworthy read her new piece about the Kreutzer Sonata. Then she was joined by Andrew Haveron, concertmaster of the SSO. The concert was exceptional. We went home ahead later joined by Chloe Hooper and Anna Crean and the two musicians. Never had I had a Guadagnini violin in the house. I peppered Andrew with questions about the SSO and liked his style. He's looking forward to Simone Young's tenure as chief conductor, commencing next year, and said there will be more opera. March 21. We went to the NGV and admired some of Joseph Brown's pictures in the wing specially named after him, that foolish indulgence when Gerard Vaughan was director of NGV. When will they integrate Brown's bounty and free up all that space? March 22. We've moved Mum into a nursing home. Respite, they call it. March 23. The ABR JNI editorial cadetship is closed with a total of 118 applications. March 25. After work, we had a drink at Southbank. Suddenly, about 60 police marched past, heavily armed, there to guard slightly fewer genial Extinction Rebellion demonstrators who were bound for the News Corp headquarters where they promptly lay down in the foyer, wonderfully precise, as if they do it every night. April 7. This evening I saw The Father, with luminous performances from Olivia Coleman and Anthony Hopkins. 
Those closing minutes will stay with me for a long time. I came home and needed a stiff drink. April 8. Woke early and finished Alfred Döblin's little book of reportage, Two Women and a Poisoning, based on a remarkable trial in Berlin in 1923, six years before Döblin's great novel of Berlin. Much excitement about James Chang's appointment as our new JNI editorial cadet. Visited mum after work. She was in bed at 5.45pm. I begin to feel bitter about what life has done to my brother and now my mother. April 9. Today I read The Humbling, perhaps the slightest of Philip Roth's late novels, though not without qualities, including those zestful conversational riffs when his characters pursue their relentless art of persuasion. April 10. All my life I have wanted to send a bottle of wine to another table. This evening I sent one interstate to the Jasmine in Adelaide, where C was dining with Anne Oliver. I can hear Anne's sublime cackle from here. Headed to Carlton late morning to see White Riot at the Nova. I chatted with Mark Rubo, slimmer, newly bearded. We commiserated about 2020. Mark jokingly said he's suffering from a form of PTSD. Aren't we all? April 11. Michael Morley and I exchanged ironic emails. I told him about the tour that C is leading in Adelaide. It took them to Carrick Hill. Upstairs, there is a special exhibition, Lawnmowers. I reread Claire Bloom's memoir, More Philip Roth Research, Hell Hath No Fury. April 12. Early to the office. Mum's situation being dire after an aspiration attack. I had to ask Jack and Amy to lead the first Monash publishing masterclass. There was much to do, several arts reviews, including Malcolm Gillies on the new national opera's La Clemenza in Canberra, clearly an event. But I felt absurd tearing around and fretting over the magazine. I recall the day of my brother's funeral 22 years ago, That morning I attended an OUP board meeting. I think I blamed my boss at the time, but it was my choice to stay so businesslike, so efficient. Such a company man, one of my colleagues observed. I reached the nursing home at 2pm with C. Mum looked so twisted on her bed, unbelievably small and desolate. It is inexpressibly heartbreaking. We came home and had a Middle Eastern meal across the road. The loudness of the other diners made me want to commit murder. April 14. Cynthia Osik has a magisterial review of the Roth biography, which is already attracting a remarkable critical literature. One quote from Roth's book, American Pastoral, moved me. It's the damn poignancy of everything that rocks me a little. May 23. I've been reading Bernard Shaw's music criticism in the indispensable bodily head edition, all three fat volumes. 
There's a charming anecdote in Dan H. Lawrence's introduction about the actress Greer Garson wheedling Shaw, then age 94, into accompanying her at the piano in a bevy of musical ditties. Shaw, who played and sang for his wife at the Beckstein for 30 years, stopped when she died. It's hard to disagree with Dan Lawrence when he says, the musical journalism Shaw produced is probably as brilliant as any that literate man can ever hope to see. Just try to name another critical journalist in the English language who remains as readable after nearly a century. Quite. May 27. We learned early that the lockdowns will commence this evening. Once again, our office will remain open. Lockdown, of course, means we can't visit Elsie, potentially for weeks. May 28. The streets are empty. People seem resigned to lockdown, used to the drill. May 30. I'd forgotten how time drags during lockdown. One of the infections occurred in a Melbourne aged care facility, a worker, not a resident. Now that I'm familiar with the sector, I understand how traumatic it must have been for residents, cognitively impaired or not, detained in their rooms with no visitors and irregular contact with staff in full PPE. June 2. I persuaded Patricia Fullerton to let me publish her charming, idiosyncratic memoir of her visit to the collection of Hilma Afklint in 1996, long before the world discovered this artist, who now seems likely to disrupt the art historical landscape, having prefigured the early abstractionists, Kandinsky and all, by ten years. Trish must have been one of the first people in the world to see the work June 3. This evening I wrote to Patrick McCackie and told him that our chat about Cy Twombly is our most popular podcast of the year. But James Boyce's one on the disgusting salmon farming industry, prompted by Richard Flanagan's new book, is gaining on us fast. Last night, Malcolm Gillies attended the Australian World Orchestra's first concert in Canberra, and today we published his laudatory review. Then Ian Dixon's appalled review of the new Cherry Orchard at Belvoir arrived. June 9. Elsie has had a fall. Her doctor suspects she's fractured her hip, ribs too possibly. This is what we've been dreading. Mum will be moved to hospital shortly for x-rays, Access to her in hospital during lockdown seems very doubtful. June 11. Sheila Fitzpatrick and Billy Griffiths and I met to choose the two calibre winners from a short list of three. We did it by phone, as Billy Griffiths is still without power in Mount Macedon two days after a terrible storm. Anita Punton's essay Mayday firmed in everyone's estimation and ultimately came second. Theodore L.'s essay, Facades of Lebanon, was a clear winner. Then I made Theodore very happy indeed. Like others before him, he said it was the best thing that had ever happened to him. Sometimes I think B.J. Silcox knows all the interesting people in the world, 
It was BJ who encouraged Theodore to turn his account of the Beirut explosion into a caliber essays. Both married to diplomats, they're very close friends. June 12, the best laid plans of mice and men. We had all sorts of plans for the long weekend, including a dinner at Distasio and a film or two, but these were suspended this afternoon when Michael Carr told Grace that someone with COVID had visited Boyd on Tuesday. Earlier, we dashed to Cabrini to see Mum briefly as they loaded her into an ambulance before returning her to the nursing home. When she finally emerged on a stretcher, she looked unbelievably tiny beneath a massive bouquet of flowers. A nurse told us she was much loved in Five West. June 15. David Maloof rang, sounding chipper. He wanted to wish us well for this week's event at the Judith Nielsen Institute in Sydney, so I explained that it's been cancelled because of COVID. David told me about the new hotter gallery at Surface Paradise. We'll miss him when he comes down for the concert version of Voss in August. We hope to be in Sydney then, but we're planning to hear the Adelaide repeat in September. As ever, David had all the dates in his head. June 16. This evening we watched the new documentary on Nureyev. I thought I knew all there was to know about the Russian, or Tatar, but this was illuminating. Then we realised it was 60 years to the day since Nureyev's defection to the West. June 17. I'm rereading Nostromo, densest and most inscrutable of novels. How many times did Joseph Conrad use that word inscrutable? So rarely does one feel a novelist knows the dismal, corrupt, irreformable ways of the world, as in the brilliant, subtle, brief scene when Charles Gould visits and bribes the local supremo who mistakes Donizetti for Mozart. Lockdown restrictions ease tomorrow night. Now Sydney seems vulnerable again. I have no doubt at all that we'll go on enduring these lockdowns every few months around the country to some degree of severity. June 18. Aggravations, I realise now, are necessary spurs, a kind of modus vivendi. They energise me. Was my father whom, in so many ways I resemble, I also now realise, the same. Like me, he had two jobs for most of his life, and as a coach, he worked with hundreds and hundreds of young people. Did slackness or incompetence embolden him? I'd like to ask him now. June 20. Ian Dixon is devastated to learn that James Merrill whose letters he's reviewing for me, had seen 18 operas by the time he was 12. Ian thought he was doing well. Thanks for listening to the ABR podcast. We hope you'll join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 per month for digital Visit our website for more information. 
We'd like to thank Jack Khalil and Clancy Balin, who edit the podcast. 